I have more of a problem with people thinking they are smarter than the market. The markets are always right. They're always mm -hmm. right. Never blame the market. It's always you. Markets are a voting machine in the short run and a weighing machine in the long run. And that's beautifully true in crypto because if there is hype around one thing, then everybody votes and they vote with their money that this should this should be it now. And then you get these these hype cycles. But in the long run, it's really important to think about what is it that should make this token valuable in two years, five years, mm. ten years, forty, fifty years maybe. Like if you if you start um, climbing. You don't immediately go for uh, the, the Eigenort one or the Matterhorn or whatever. I don't know actually which path are hard. <laughs> some, some or if nice you Swiss references. If you if you are a chess player, you don't immediately uh, start by trying to beat Magnus Carlsen. You start small. But that's a good analogy because I I believe that you should. I'm a hodler myself, and I believe that you cannot really beat the market because you are not really smarter than all of the other people combined. And also in chess, you are now not smarter than the best chess computers. So wouldn't that mean, hey, you shouldn't even try to trade? Just go and hold on and make your bet that this market will go up. This and many other questions will be answered in this episode of Unforkable, the podcast that brings you juicy stories straight from the blockchain. My name is Jonas and today on the show you can eavesdrop on my conversation with Raphael Huber, the head of research at Bitcoin Swiss. Raphael holds a PhD in chemistry and his job is to stay on top of everything that happens in the crazy fast changing world of cryptocurrencies. In this episode we talk about the monetary premium of Bitcoin and other crypto, we discuss the benefits of trading versus hodling, tribalism and why it is important to keep an open mind when evaluating new crypto projects, we discuss the current crypto bull market and why this time it really is different, we also cover DeFi, yield farming and liquidity mining, all of which will be explained in the following wide-spanning interview with Dr. Raphael Huber. Also, quick side note, none of what you hear is financial advice and for informational purposes only. With that out of the way, let's start the show. So my name is Rafa Huber, I'm the head of research at Bitcoin Swiss. Generally, we give uh, insights into the crypto markets, both from the fundamental side, but also what's exciting at the moment in crypto. You are actually Dr. Rafael Huber. So what kind of doctor are you? Give us a short bio about yourself. So my background is in science. I've studied chemistry and done my doctorate in, in chemistry, my PhD. And so I'm really coming more from the traditional research side and not necessarily from uh, computer science. But I was very interested in crypto technology and cryptocurrencies. Once I first heard about them, I was immediately captivated. I heard about Bitcoin before, but I got really interested with Ethereum and smart contracts. I think once you really go down the, the crypto rabbit hole, uh, it's hard to get out again. It's just so fascinating how much happens and at which pace things happen. Could you relate somehow what you learned from your school and educational background in chemistry to crypto? Well, I would say yes, but of course not the, the um, technical stuff. Um, so it doesn't help you if you know how to make a certain molecule for, for crypto. But what does help is the tools for research. Um, so it, it's always the same. You need to get your information. You need to assess the quality of a source. You need to gather data. And then you need to put that together in a nice way. 
and uh, see what conclusions you can reasonably draw from those data points that you collected. And mm -hmm. I think that's that's basically the same in any topic that you would like to understand more deeply and from a very uh, objective uh, view. Your job is to look into interesting crypto projects, etc. So do I have to imagine that you are on Twitter all day long and on Reddit or how is your work? Actually, Twitter is a, an excellent source of very fast information in crypto. If a really relevant event happens, and I'm thinking back to 2017, for example, where we had multiple episodes where China banned Bitcoin. Often there was a sharp drop over a short period of time when such news came out. And then if you see this, you, you try to find out, well, is there anything behind this sharp drop which doesn't really feel right with what happened before in the market? And then you go to Twitter and you see, okay, there's some news about China banning Bitcoin. Once again, they've done so multiple times and they're, it's still not really banned. Mm -hmm. Now they're even embracing it partially, talking about it in their state-owned media. But so, yeah, Twitter is usually a good source of information. But then, of course, once you want to look into the details, you, you go much deeper. You, you you start on start reading blog posts of the projects. You start looking into their uh, GitHub repositories. You start uh, reading white papers and other material on, on how their token economics are, on what use cases it could potentially be applied for, and so on. Do you also do proprietary research where you gather data sets or maybe use data that you have from Bitcoin Swiss to come up with new insights? We do that occasionally, but not that often. It's, I mean, the crypto space is, is very open and uh, you can actually gather a, a wealth of uh, data just from open APIs and uh, open sources. So that's something that's very cool. I mean, just think about crypto exchanges. Um, you can access all the trades that are happening. You can access the order books. Um, but then on the other hand, you can also look directly on the blockchain. Uh, what's going on? What are big holders doing? Crypto whales, are they sending coins to exchanges? Are they rather withdrawing? Are they accumulating and so on? And the blockchain itself is, of course, also completely open and can give you some nice insights on what people actually are doing or what mm. people are actually using at the moment. This was very relevant this summer when we had this hype around DeFi. And actually the hype has died down, but DeFi is still very, very active. Um, I think like more than 14 billion locked at the moment. Mm -hmm. um, and you can you can see all of this directly on chain. Speaking of DeFi, can you quickly give an introduction what DeFi means? And then maybe one cool thing that happened this year or one story of a DeFi project, maybe relating to SushiSwap or whatever is in your in, in your mind, what you thought was the most interesting thing happening this sure, year? Sure, sure. Uh, so people have been working on protocols that would fall under DeFi, decentralized finance, for quite some time. And this summer it really took off. But what it all is, is basically trying to build up some kind of financial infrastructure that is completely open, that is permissionless, and that people can just use, even if, if they don't have access to traditional banking systems. Um, for us in Switzerland, that's not a problem. Everybody has a bank account, but that's not the case everywhere in the world. And I think um, there's, of course, the, the speculative side of DeFi, where people try to, to earn the highest yields and so on. 
and uh, also were willing to take quite some risk in some cases. And then, it, then there is the other side where people have, are really struggling to get access to uh, suitable banking services. And that's partly what DeFi could also offer in the longer run to these people. I mean, just think of the stablecoin DAI. Um, that, that's actually used a lot in various parts of the world that are maybe not as fortunate as we are here because, for example, their currency is not as stable, so they can use DAI to access synthetic dollars, basically, and use that as a store of value and uh, make sure that what they earned doesn't just get inflated away at like 40% a month or so. So DeFi stands for decentralized finance and is an umbrella term that could mean many different things. DeFi could be a stable coin, but it could also be an application on the blockchain that allows users, for instance, to lend and borrow crypto on the blockchain. But when we talk about the DeFi hype of 2020, we need to understand what liquidity mining and yield farming is. It really kicked off when Compound started liquidity mining. And what liquidity mining basically is, is... Compound aims to be a fully decentralized protocol. It was not a fully decentralized protocol before. Um, there were people that had a lot of access to the protocol, so they had sort of admin keys to control. But now they're going more into the direction of full decentralization. And of course, if you want to still have ways to govern your protocol, you need some kind of mechanism to decide who gets to vote on, on changes. And what they did is to introduce a token called COM. And they just decided to give this out to all users um, of the platform. So everybody who was borrowing or lending um, on Compound would get this token. What, what then happened is that the COMP token attracted a lot of hype and also got quite valuable. And that led to people just depositing as much as possible into Compound to get as much comp tokens as possible because the amount that you get is related to how much you actually have in the protocol mm -hmm. and um, so people were also doing strategies like depositing one stable coin withdrawing another or borrowing another stable coin against it and so on and that's just mm -hmm. one example and that's what really kick-started it and then there was this wealth of protocols that that followed that used this idea also of of liquidity mining to get more value now we, we touched upon a lot of things what one is the liquidity mining and um what is the difference to yield farming i mean what what are those two terms i'm sure uh, if you are in DeFi, you've you've heard those a lot um yield farming and liquidity mining just in a very basic concept and now i like to think about christmas christmas coming up and you're i'm sure you're going to meet your family if everything goes with covid and then there's the uncle and he asks you, hey, Rafael, what are you doing? <laughs> I heard about this stuff, DeFi. Can you give me like a easy way to understand what's going on in, in this crazy world of crypto? Yeah, well, I, if my uncle asked me, I will probably start by explaining what Compound and protocols like these are doing. So they're basically providing a borrowing lending service where you can deposit a cryptocurrency like Ether. That is your collateral. And let's say if you put in $1,000 worth of ETH, then you can take out maybe six, $700 worth of DAI. And that's one, one thing that people do if they need some money, need some access to US dollars, but don't want to sell their ETH. So it's something that uh, traders looking to get more exposure to Ether or also Bitcoin and so on. 
use. Um, and then liquidity mining is is basically what I said before. It's it's just a way. Liquidity mining is a way um, that protocols try to incentivize users to use their protocol. So maybe one example would be if you are a customer of a company. Let's say you buy um, Apple products every year for a couple thousand bucks. That then they would they would give you small parts of some Apple shares so that the users of the products are actually the ones that also get some right to vote and some of the protocol uh, benefits like maybe dividends or so. I think that's probably an easy way to think about liquidity mining. Just a company gives out shares. And the mining aspect, what you were saying is people would buy a lot of Apple products even if they don't need it because they want to get those shares. And that's kind of like the... What a lot of whales or people who are um, very deep into crypto and have a lot of crypto did the whole summer. And that's the liquidity mining. And now what is uh, yield farming in the same easy uh, explained way? Basically, liquidity mining is uh, from a perspective of the protocol. Uh, they are offering this to their customers, if you will, to incentivize them to come there. And then yield farming is more from the side of the user. To use, again, the analogy... Uh, you would compare how much shares you get from the different companies and um, you would then go and specifically buy maybe the, the, the products of a company, even if you don't need them, and then maybe resell them on the secondary market. The crypto version of this is that you would just go to a, a protocol or you would look which strategies can you do that maximize really your annual yield. Mm -hmm. or maybe also your daily yield. So it's like more the, the tactical way of taking advantage of those kind of protocols. Exactly. Great. I think I think what we touched on is really um, makes clear that the DeFi space is super complicated and this podcast is aimed to make it more accessible for everyone. And one thing a lot of people that come into the crypto space are confronted with is that saying D-Y-O-R, do your own research. How deep does the average Joe have to go to have a good grapple on what is a good project? Honestly, I think quite deep. Um, but then I think the most important thing to understand about uh, a protocol is usually what is the idea and what can it do if it works in the way that they describe it. Because then if you decide that even if this works exactly how they describe, and that's usually not guaranteed and often comes with various technical hurdles, um, mm -hmm. if even then it's not a good project in your point of view, then th that's already a killer mm -hmm. argument. Like, for instance, the blockchain for dental uh, yeah, Dentacoin. medicine. Dentacoin. Yeah, they, they wanted Dentacoin. to do some the blockchain. Blockchain. What was that? A blockchain for 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 dentists or something? Yeah, it was just. I think it was <laughs> to be used as a means of payment um, for, for dentists. Yeah. I mean, I don't know. That, that was. Th that's an extreme example of something. Even if it yes. works, it's just a stupid idea, right? Yeah, and then the other part comes also in. What should the value of the token be? Like, why should this be valuable? And in this case of, of this Dentacoin, it will maybe just have been, uh, yeah, well, it's a means of payment, but you can just as easily use any other kind of payment so that there wouldn't have been much use to the token. And that's, that's always uh, important to consider as well. Like, if this works, why should this token be valuable? 
what ways to capture value uh, does the mm -hmm. token have? Is it either through straight up dividends or is it through some kind of buyback and burn? But when we have now this uh, example of this ridiculous Denta coin, and then what would be on the other side of that scale? What is like a, a very daring, cool project that, that tackles a big market and has a big potential um, when it works, but it's unclear if it works. Do you have some examples there? My, my immediate first thought was Bitcoin. If I had mm -hmm. to say what's at the other end of the spectrum, what it's currently doing, it does very well, which is to provide um, to provide some sort of uh, store of value, at least so far. Um, and then, I mean, you can always look at, at, to come back to DeFi, you can always look at various tokens there. Um, you have the governance tokens. Many of them don't have this real value capture mechanism yet. But since you are governing the protocol, uh, you could implement something like that. Uh, that would also be one example. If you think DeFi will be big, then uh, various governance tokens might make sense to hold. I don't know. Uh, just to uh, summarize the governance token, um, how I see it, and correct me if I'm wrong, a governance token basically would give you the right for, let's say you have a popular DeFi application, for instance, for borrowing and lending. And now um, usually those take a little fee, right? I mean, uh, to use the protocol, you have to pay a tiny amount. And if you would buy this governance token, the idea why this token should even have value is that you can start to vote and you have kind of like a say in the protocol and you can then say, hey, I would like to increase the amount, for instance, of the fee that people have to pay to people who hold this governance token. But wouldn't that incentivize people to basically install again very costly kind of services uh, just for their own good? Like, is, isn't that exactly like installing again the middleman? Not um, really. Um, it's, it's, first of all, it's way more competitive. Margins are super compressed. So to be able to do anything like this, to install this sort of feed to, to charge a protocol rent, you need very strong network effects and you will be challenged. Like we have seen mm -hmm. this with SushiSwap and the other decentralized exchange where they added some incentives for people to come to them and then the people just moved. Mm -hmm. uh, lots of liquidity was moving from Uniswap, the other one, the other big one, to yeah. SushiSwap. So you need very strong network effects and it's a hyper-competitive market. And you really need some good arguments why people should still use your protocol despite the fee. And that can only come, in my point of view, through network effects. So if you are mm -hmm. integrated deeply with others, then maybe, maybe you can risk to charge a few basis points. But mm -hmm. it, in the end, because it's so competitive, it will be less uh, expensive still, even if protocols charge some rent. And on the other hand, uh, that's maybe okay that they won't be able to charge as much because the market is also global. So you have potentially a lot of reach. So maybe mm -hmm. that's fine then if you are in a very competitive market and charge a very thin uh, margin only. Mm -hmm. I think that was quite interesting what you're saying that people like those yield farmers, they always go where there's the best yield and they don't have like a loyalty, so to speak, so much to a uh, protocol. And that has been shown with a uh, Uniswap and SushiSwap. 
where SushiSwap is just this clone, basically, and with this incentive, um, just luring people away from Uniswap. And that's in a big contrast to the other thing that's happening in crypto, where loyalty to a protocol is very deep. Like there's almost like a religious belief in some projects like Bitcoin, Ethereum, that sometimes stand in conflicts with each other. Um, how do you see that? Like this tribalism in, in the crypto space and how does it affect your work? Well, you know, I think actually the tribalism is one of the worst things. Um, but I think it's also necessary to some extent because, you know, there are the tokens that will have these kind of uh, direct cash flows, let's say from a DeFi protocol, where you can then reasonably calculate why they should have at least some value or if they could have some value and so on. Um, but then there is the other part of the spectrum, which is coins like Bitcoin or Ether. If they're just used for a medium of exchange, um, then they're probably not that valuable in the long run. But if they can accrue some kind of a monetary premium, and we, we have seen that in 17, uh, I think that's one of the reasons why we might have seen such a price uh, increase in 17 for Ether, because people were buying Ether in order to participate in the ICOs, uh, which have often been very profitable, uh, especially in the beginning. And then in this case, Ether was used as money to participate in ICOs. And that's what I mean with monetary premium. If people start to be willing to hold it and to be willing to trust it also, that they will get exactly what they want from it. And also at some point in the future, then the token could also build up a monetary premium. And I think that's one of the key things to think about. Why should this be used as money? Why should this be seen as money? Because money is all about trust, even our money. I mean, our fiat currencies like the Swiss franc and the US dollar and so on is basically a a promise on future tax returns, right? So we are hoping that our economies grow fast enough if we print some more money and so on. We can stimulate the economy. And I think that's also that's also a big topic in crypto, like which currencies are trusted. And then to come back to the tribalism part, that of course helps. It's this religiousness about a certain currency strengthens your beliefs. Now you're starting to see um, some people getting quite maximalistic about Ethereum as well. Uh, that's mm -hmm. just something that comes maybe also with investing your own money um, because then you just think about things uh, maybe a bit more emotional or it's harder to separate emotions from it. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I, I feel that myself. I mean, I try to be open-minded to all the projects, but obviously I form my kind of bias and when you follow certain people on Twitter or you follow certain Reddits, you get into this bubble, right? And But you only enforce your own bias over and over again. And I think it's kind of radicalizing you in a, in a way. And as you said, <clears throat> if you have your own money on, at stake, there's somehow a different kind of connection. It's almost like mm -hmm. maybe for a football club where people have also this kind of connection. Um, but there it's even deeper because it really affects the bottom line of your wealth, right? And... Yeah. And you know, one of the like men mental discrepancies that might build up is um, if you're trying to be open-minded about a new project and a new idea, then usually that's that's not black and white. That's somewhere in the in a grayscale. Um, mm -hmm. mm -hmm. Somewhere uh, 
between very, very good and very, very bad. But then if you need to make a decision, really, what, what should you do now? Uh, it becomes very black and white because in, mm -hmm. in the end, of course, you can, you can uh, try to allocate uh, your portfolio in a certain way. You try to get this uh, grayscale, etc. done, but in the end, it's still a yes or no decision that everybody has to make for him or herself. And then it becomes black and white. And that's maybe some something that's a bit hard. Mm -hmm. And um, we are now in a bull market. Last one was really in 2017. Now we have another one. We almost had a record time of this recording. The Bitcoin almost went to all-time highs again. Now it dropped a little bit again. Um, first of all, what, what is different this time than, than last bull market? Do you see some differences? And what does it mean for somebody who is joining now? Um, for somebody who is joining now, I think one of the important things is try to understand the big ones first. Try to understand Bitcoin, try to understand Ethereum, and then work your way down other interesting projects. And then what's different this time? This time around, you see a lot of also institutional interest, known macro investors, known hedge fund managers coming out and saying that Bitcoin is a reasonable hedge against inflation. You have people like the chief investment officer of fixed income of BlackRock. Uh, which is one of the largest asset management firms on the globe, recruiter come out and say, Bitcoin is here to stay. And he thinks it's probably better than gold in some of the functions that it has. Digital payment systems is real. So I think Bitcoin is here to stay. I think, you know, do, am I, a, am I a, a Bitcoin bull? I mean, I don't do a lot of it or virtually any of it in my portfolios, my, my, uh, my corporate portfolios, my business portfolios. But do I think it is probably, I, you know, it's hard to say, is it worth the price it's trading at today? But do I think it's a durable mechanism that, that you know, do I think will take the place of gold to a large extent? Yeah, I do, because it's so much more functional than, uh, than passing a bar of gold around. And, uh, and by the way, the tracking, the way you can track. And that's something that's just incredible to think about, how far the space has come and mm -hmm. how people think about it, going from a pure scam and it's only money for criminals and so on, to yes, this is an investable asset class and um, people really debating about the true benefits and drawbacks. Mm -hmm. What I get from your response also is that people are zooming in on Bitcoin, those investors, because it has this promise of being this store of value. All the gold in the world is now worth around 9 trillion US dollars and Bitcoin is only 300 billion. That's why it has room to grow. That's the simple way of thinking about it. Um, is there a more sophisticated way of thinking about, let's say, the value proposition of Bitcoin and how far it could really grow? So I think most of the valuation models that people have tried to come up with are really not worth much because Bitcoin is just deviating from the, its true valuation so often that it really doesn't provide you much of an advantage. I think the comparison with gold is certainly uh, worth a thought, but in the long run, it really it's like it's 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 kind of asymmetric in in terms of what you can get. It's basically either Bitcoin works or it doesn't as a store of value. It goes back to the trust issue. Like that's why why those. Um, large funds maybe allocate to Bitcoin first because it has gained much more trust uh, than other newer cryptocurrencies over the past more than 10 years. It's easier to put your money in something that 
has been around for 10 years than something that has been around for five years. And it's also, Bitcoin is very unique in the sense that it was distributed in a very fair way, you could say. Bitcoin has been mined since 2009, and everybody basically had the chance to participate and get some. So it is it has a reasonable distribution as well. There are many advantages that you can name for Bitcoin, but the, the strongest one is trust in my point of view. Mm. And then when you go a little bit further down um, to the next coins, it gets... I don't know. I think you, you see that it's quite a, a young market still very quickly because I, I think there are a lot of projects there that maybe don't necessarily deserve to be valued as they are. Let's say like a, a Ripple or a Litecoin or all those projects that just stick around or all those kind of like forks of Bitcoin. Um, how do you see that? I mean... It, does that worry you a little bit and also that they always move together when bitcoin goes up everybody else also kind of they all seem to be correlated quite a lot no that doesn't worry me personally i mean i see it the same way and there are some coins which i think uh, do not have as much as a strong value proposition as others um, but of course that's just my personal opinion and uh, in the end uh, the markets are also just a voting machine in the in the short run there is this beautiful quote from benjamin graham if i'm not mistaken intelligent investor or so from his book and um basically one quote there is markets are a voting machine in the short run and a weighing machine in the long run and that's something that's beautifully true in crypto because if there is hype around one thing then everybody votes and they vote with their money that this should this should be it now. And then you get these these hype cycles. But in the long run, um, it's really important to think about what is the value really? What is it that should make this token or a coin valuable in two years, five years, mm. 10 years, 40, 50 years maybe? Mm. And uh, I think, so I don't see this as a problem. I have more of a problem with people thinking they are smarter than the market. Um, because the markets are always right. They're always mm -hmm. right. That's, that's, that's like, if you are, if you're tra actively trading yourself, then never blame the market. It's always you. Um, and because the market is just the, the sum of all participants that collectively decides what something should be worth. And that's again, going back to uh, how we uh, basically think about money. Money is also just a, a construct of society because that's basically what we use to store work or value mm -hmm. that we have provided in the past. Mm -hmm. a very, very interesting. Um, for a beginner or not even beginner, for, for intermediary as well, like would you say hold on to the coins or trade? That, that's something that everybody has to decide for him or herself. Um, and just, I mean, just in general, uh, whenever you try something that you are not uh, a professional in, uh, you usually don't start. Like if you if you start um, climbing, you don't immediately go for uh, the the Eigenortwand or the Matterhorn or whatever. I don't know actually which, which path are hard. <laughs> some, some or if nice you with references, if you if you are a chess player, you don't immediately uh, start by trying to beat Magnus Carlsen. You start small. 
And right. uh, I mean, that's, that's just something general, but, I would say. But that's a good analogy. I'm a hodler myself and I believe that uh, also as what you said, you cannot really beat the market because you are not really smarter than all of the other people combined. Um, and also in chess, you are now not smarter than the best chess computers anymore. So wouldn't that mean, hey, you shouldn't even try to trade, just go and ho hold on and make your bet that this market will go up? I mean, that's that's so hard to say because, I mean, who are your enemies in the market, basically? You don't know how much time people invest into things. I mean, if you think back, um, insider trading used to be legal uh, back in the days. Oh, really? Yeah. What? Okay. Then you, you could actually say you have an informational advantage. There is an information asymmetry, something other market participants don't do not know yet and mm -hmm. that you could expect them to react to once they know it. That kind of trading was profitable, which was also uh, at the expense of the other investors, which is why it was uh, made illegal. And uh, of course, you don't have that in Bitcoin or Ethereum, because what kind of news could you know that other people don't, that you are sure will have a, a strong market mm -hmm. impact? That's something that just doesn't exist in my point of view. If somebody wants to play play around a bit, but maybe don't put your entire net worth into one trade or so. Mm. Mm. Just common sense. Cool. Hey, thank you so much, Rafael, for your time. I really appreciate it. Where can people follow you if they want to know more about Bitcoin Swiss or your research or maybe your own internet presence? I don't know if you're on Twitter or, or something like that. Um, so... Uh, of course, our website, BitcoinSwiss.com. So we have our bi-weekly newsletter, which is called Bitcoin Swiss Decrypt. Uh, there you can sign up and you will get uh, an update every two weeks. We also have a yearly outlook where we try to spot what's important in 2021. You can also find that on the research page. And then we also have fundamentals articles, which try to highlight really the basics of each coin and maybe just one more thing the first season of decrypt it talks about many fundamental topics as well and if you're reading them start from the very first and read them chronologically i tried to build this in a way that if you read them in the order that they were published then it should make a lot of sense in the end if you listen until now there's a good chance that you liked this episode Please help to spread the word about Unforkable by rating it on Apple Podcast. Or even better, become a super spreader by forwarding this episode to two people who you think might be interesting in hearing it. Let's keep that R value above one when it comes to podcasts and crypto while keeping it low for nasty viruses and misinformation. Thank you.